Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up before yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break and steal. But lay up for your tre- yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God got a few stories for you this morning. Many years ago, in the land of Lydia, there was a beautiful garden. Roses of every shade grew there, and on warm summer nights, the air smelled heavy with their fragrance. The garden belonged to a palace, and the palace belonged to a king whose name was Midas. He was, it is true, rather a greedy king, but on the whole, no better or no worse than any other man. Midas had a loving wife and a daughter he adored, but he was still discontented. He wanted to be the most powerful king, and he wanted everyone to envy him. One day, he was walking through the palace gardens and came upon a satyr named Silenus. The satyrs were strange and mischievous creatures, half man, half beast, who roamed the world in search of adventure. Midas frowned, angry that someone would be sleeping in his garden without permission. Disgraceful, said Midas to Salinas. I shall send word to your master at once. Salinas began to look very worried, for his master was Dionysus, a god who is not only very powerful, but quick-tempered. I beg you, please don't do that, he cried. He will be angry with me. Suppose we make a bargain. If you will overlook my foolishness, I will entertain you with the strange and wonderful tales better than any you have ever heard before. Midas agreed, and the satyr stayed on at the palace. At the end of the week, Midas sent back the satyr to Dionysus. The god was very fond of Silenus, and despite his many faults, he was pleased to see him. And so, seeing that he was safe and sound, he wanted to offer Midas a gift for taking care of this satyr. And he offered the king a gift, any that he cared to name. Any gift he cared to name. What a marvelous opportunity. He pondered for a whole day and a whole night and then asked Dionysus if he could make a wish. The god agreed. And Midas asked for the power to turn whatever he touched into gold. The god granted his wish and Midas was jubilant. Imagine a king with a golden touch. He would be the most wealthiest and the most powerful man in all the land. The king began to experiment with this new gift, and he hurried into the garden where he touched the roses and realized the bush turned into gold. One after another, he touched bush after bush, and before he knew it, the entire bush, his entire rose garden, was turned to gold. Suddenly... He looked around doubtfully, 
For gone was the beautiful fragrance of the flowers. The garden was still and lifeless. Inside the palace, the king called for a goblet of wine, and as soon as it touched his lips, it turned to gold. A terrible thought occurred to him. What will happen when I eat? With trembling fingers, he reached out to touch that apple in the bowl, and as he touched it with his fingers, it turned immediately to gold. What have I done, he whispered. If I cannot eat, if I cannot drink, I will surely die. He knew that he had made a terrible mistake and decided to beg Dionysus to take this gift back. I will go to him at once, he cried, but his decision came just too late. For at that very moment, his daughter ran into the room. He cried, stay away from me. But before she took notice, she threw, his ar- she threw her arms around him and immediately turned to gold. His daughter was now a gleaming but a lifeless statue. And the king stared at her in horror. What have I done, he said. Kneeling beside her, his grief was so great that no one could conceal, console him. He hurried to the palace of Dionysus and threw himself at the god's feet and said, Forgive my stupid greed. Tell me what I must do to save my child. Dionysus told him, Find the river Pactolus and wash yourself in the waters, Dionysus said. He spoke truthfully, for upon washing himself in the waters, he realized he no longer had the power to turn things to gold. He began to joyfully make his way home, and upon approaching, approaching the palace, Midas' daughter ran up to him. He lifted her into his arms, and he carried her into his garden. Overjoyed to hear her laughter once more, he sighed happily and breathed in the fragrance of the flowers once again. I have learned my lesson, he said softly. I am now content. Long after, but still very long ago, there lived on the banks of the great river on the edge of the wilder land a clever-handed and quiet-footed little people. I guess you could say they were hobbit-like. There was among them a family of high repute, for it was large and wealthier than most, and it was ruled by a grandmother of the folk. The most inquisitive and curious-minded of that family was called Smeagol. He had a friend called Deagle of a similar short, sharp, sharp eye, but not so quick and strong. One time they took a boat and went out to the Gladden fields where they were great beds of irises and beautiful flowering reeds. There, Smeagol got out and was nosing around the banks, but Deagle decided to stay in the boat and fish. Suddenly, a great fish took his hook, and before he knew it, where, before he knew where he was, he was dragged to the bottom of the riverbed. Then he let go of his line, for he saw a beautiful gold ring. Then up he came spluttering, the ring shone glittering in the sun, and Deagle's heart was glad. But Smeagol had been watching him from behind the tree, and Deagle gloated over the ring. Smeagol came slowly up behind him and said, Give me that ring, Deagle. Why? said Deagle. Because it's my birthday, my love, and I want it, said Smeagol. I don't care, said Deagle. I've given you a present already, more than I could even afford. I found this ring. I want to keep it. Oh, 
Are you indeed going to keep it, my love, said Smeagol. And he caught Deagle by the throat and strangled him because the gold looked so bright and so beautiful. Then he put the ring on his finger. No one ever found out what had become of Deagle, for he was murdered far from home and his body was cunningly hidden by Smeagol. But Smeagol returned alone and he found that none of his family could see him for when he was wearing the ring, he was not visible. He was pleased with this discovery and he concealed it. He used it to find out secrets and he put his knowledge to crooked and malicious uses. He became sharp-eyed and keen-eared for all that was hurtful around him. He became very unpopular, as you can imagine, and was shunned when visible by all of his relations. He took to thieving and going about muttering to himself and making a gurgling noise in his throat. So they called him Gollum and cursed him and told him to go far away. And his grandmother, desiring peace, expelled him from the family and turned them out of his hole. He wandered in loneliness, weeping a little for the hardness of the world. He journeyed through to the misty mountains and found a little cave out of which a dark stream ran. He wormed his way like a maggot into the heart of the hills and vanished out of all knowledge. Elizabeth Holmes is an 18-year-old year freshman at Stanford University where she studies biotechnology. But tonight, she finds herself in Houston, Texas, celebrating Christmas with her family. For days, she's been eager for this very moment because something important is going to happen. She has something very important to share. Holmes lays down her fork and her knife and glances around the table and says, Hey, everyone, everyone stop. I have something I want to share with you. Holmes's brother and mother and father turn towards her. She feels a jolt of nervous excitement and says, So I've been thinking, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I've made the decision. I'm going to drop out of Stanford. Holmes's father sets down his fork and says, Liz, what are you talking about? Why would you drop out of Stanford? Wasn't that your dream? No, she says, my dream is to become a billionaire. Her father laughs, Liz, how are you going to do that without a college degree? Bill Gates, Michael Dell, Steve Jobs, she said, they all dropped out and all of them founded their own companies before they were 30 years old and I can't fall behind. I can't just sit around some college and waste my time. I've got to get building. I mean, look at our family. We're built with entrepreneurs. Our family started the Cincinnati General Hospital and the Fleischmann Yeast Company. Being an entrepreneur is in my DNA. Liz, says her father, happiness does not come from money or possessions. It comes from purpose, having a meaningful life. If you want to make a splash, that's fine, but don't do it for profit. Do it to improve the world. One year later, in the year 2003, Holmes dropped out of Stanford and set out to build a product that would revolutionize the healthcare industry. Her company, Theranos, worked to develop a new blood testing technology, which in theory could diagnose a wide variety of illnesses with just one single drop of blood. 
To build her company, Holmes courted a series of Silicon investors with her charisma and with inflated projections about what would happen once her company launched. She had one really big problem, though. Her blood testing technology didn't work. In fact, it never worked. Holmes didn't set out to commit fraud. She set out to change the world, just as her dad told her to. But her drive to be rich and famous caused her to cut corners she never imagined she would. In order to keep the business afloat, she continued to cover up the reality that her blood testing technology would never work. But before her deception was revealed, Elizabeth Holmes grew to become a celebrity, an icon of a tech industry, the billionaire she always wanted to be. By 2015, almost 12 years after the beginning of this deception, she was heralded as a visionary. Forbes actually named her the youngest ever self-made female billionaire. Yet for all of her public triumphs, Theranos' web of lies quickly caught up with her and was uncovered by John Kerry Rue, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. In the aftermath of Theranos, Theranos was buried in lawsuits and eventually was debunked in 2020. In June of 2018, the Securities and Exchange Commission charged Elizabeth Holmes with what the agency described as the most elaborate years-long fraud they had ever seen. Theranos was eventually dissolved, and in 2021, Holmes's federal trial began. She's currently facing up to 20 years in prison at just the age of 38. They say that some of your best stories, or excuse me, some of your best sermons come from your greatest weaknesses, which is why this final and fourth story is my own. On Friday, as I was getting ready to start my work day, my email pinged. I saw I had a notification, and I went to go open it. And what do you know? It's our tax accountant getting back to me on what we owe the federal government this year. Alex and I knew we would owe quite a bit of money. We would do a lot of 1099 work. And so, like good people, we've been saving up for it. I had made my projections. We had our budgets. We were good to go. And I open up this email, and I'm reading through it, and to my utter shock and horror, the amount is not quite, but almost double what I was anticipating. And immediately, as you can imagine, my heart sunk all the way down to my stomach. Those feelings of discouragement, frustration, annoyance, all of it began to flood my heart and my mind. It meant that the savings fund that Alex and I had been working towards for our five-year anniversary trip this summer was going to have to be greatly reduced in order to pay and fork over the federal government everything that we owe them. And in that moment, although I was very angry at this situation, I have to admit the thing that angered me the most was that I still hadn't finished a sermon on the temptations of money. It's like, cool, awesome. In that moment, I either laugh or I cry. And I must admit, I just did, I did a little bit of both. I did a little bit of both. You know, we hear it all the time growing up, right? Money does not bring us happiness. We read it in our bedtime stories, Jack and the Beanstalk, King Midas, right? 
We see it on the movie screen. We watch movies like A Christmas Carol or It's a Wonderful Life. We read literature like The Lord of the Rings, and we read the story of Gollum and the corruption that that little piece of gold had on his heart. In the words of Scott McKnight, the way that money freezes our hands and feet and stiffens our hearts, just as it did for Gollum. We hear stories of billionaire failures like Elizabeth Holmes, Bernie Madoff, the Sackler family, the former CEO of WeWork, the list goes on and on. And we quote phrases like, more money, more problems, right? And then as Americans, when we sit down at our dinner table and we're eating food, we're reminded of the starving children in Africa, right? We're reminded that most people in the world make less than $1 a day. In fact, more than 1 billion people in the world make less than $1 a day. And then we're reminded as Americans, we are some of the most wealthy people in all the world. And yet, regardless of what we make or we don't make, All of these stories, all of these examples, all of these numbers never seem to stem the tide of monetary dissatisfaction, that desire to just make a little bit more money, to just have that one thing that would finally make me happy. They don't stop us from our envy that we have for that Instagrammable house. They don't quench our, fir- our thirst for that six-figure salary. They don't decrease our desire to put in more m- hours at work to have that next great, awesome dream car. They don't quell my disappointment, my anger, and my dissatisfaction about not having this dream vacation in Florida on the beach and going to see Harry Potter World. So the question then becomes... How do we resolve this cognitive dissonance that we feel between the narrative that we're literally taught over and over and over and over and over again in our lives that money does not bring us happiness, and yet that feeling that if I could just have that one thing, my life would be better. The belief that money brings us happiness dates way back all the way to Greek and Roman folklore stories, all sorts of things that we can track throughout history, but it also shows up and appears in the pages of our Bible. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus references money over and over and over again. It's one of the topics he addresses the most in the Gospels. Specifically, we see a story in Matthew 19, verses uh, 16 through 26, in which a rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he says, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus simply says, go and sell everything you own and come and follow me. The rich young ruler walks sadly away, not just because he has a lot of wealth, but because he realizes that his wealth has become more important than his God. The disciples then look to Jesus and he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples look at each other astonished and they ask a very simple but very powerful question. Who then can be saved? It's the same question I found myself asking as I was sitting and preparing for this sermon, how can I be saved? 
Jesus works to answer and address this question in our passage today, and in doing so, helps clarify the role that possessions or wealth should have in our lives. Jesus does this through three different scenes, the first of which is the storing up of treasures that we see in 19 and 20 and 21. The second is the eye of the body analogy that we see in verses 22 and 23. And then the last one is the warning of the two masters that we see in verse 24. A few things kind of just to note before we head into the explanation of this passage. The first is this. When we examine examine the body of scripture, we actually learn that Jesus does not completely, keyword, completely reject wealth or wealthy people. So Jesus does have a strong criticism for wealth. He has harsh words of us for those of us that call ourselves Americans, effectively, or part of the wealthy class. However, that being said, he relied on the generosity of others. Jesus himself did not have very many possessions, and he did not have a home. So he relied on the wealthy donations of everyday people to ensure that he was able to live a full, meaningful life. We see this in the case of Zacchaeus, a very wealthy man who turns to Jesus, actually gives back much of the wealth he has uh, unfairly taken. And then Jesus actually invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house with a bunch of his friends. Honestly, I imagine it was probably like 70 or so people all come over to Zacchaeus' house to eat this very, very large meal. And I imagine he probably spent the night too and continued to do that multiple times throughout the course of his ministry. We also see this in the example of Joseph of Arimathea. Great honor is given to this very wealthy man because he chooses to bury, to afford the expense of burying our crucified Savior, Jesus. Similarly, we have to recognize that Jesus does not blanketly preach against owning possessions. Although he may call some of us to more of a life of simplicity, he does not call us to completely reject owning all sorts of possessions. But what he does do is help us understand where the place of those possessions lie in our heart. There are moments when storing up possessions are a good thing, right? It's good to store up or save up for a down payment on a house. It's good to save up for a college fund. In the case of Joseph of Arimathea, it was good to save up for the monies that would be needed for Jesus' burial plot. There are moments when we do store up treasures to fulfill God's calling on our lives, to bring him glory and to serve others. But with those things in mind, we do get to what the heart of Jesus is saying here in this passage. In this first scene entitled, The Storing Up of Treasures, Jesus specifically preaches against the idol of accumulation, the desire to acquire, the importance of the gathering of our earthly possessions. And everyone in America should wince because this is our greatest weakness. Jesus is not calling necessarily all of us to sell our possessions and to live as he did. But rather, he is questioning the role success, awards, appointments, salaries, promotions, possessions, and or money have in our hearts. He's questioning the idol that all of these things have become. And in response, he creates this picture of a new way of living. 
He calls us to live simply. And in doing so, he argues that not only will we satisfy our deepest desires, but we will be able to focus on the kingdom of Jesus that is already here present among us and the kingdom that is yet to come. More on that in a little bit. Enter scene two, entitled The Eye of the Body. And what Jesus uses this really bizarre analogy that sounds very foreign to our 21st century years. You're probably like listening to Brad very eloquently read the scripture and it got to that part and you're like, what just happened? Okay, and then, oh yeah, back to masters. Okay, I, I can track with that. Uh, the best way I know how to describe this is through the analogy of R2-D2 in Star Wars. Uh, everybody remember R2-D2 whenever he projects a hologram, right? The hologram originates from inside R2-D2 and it gets programmed outward. In the first century, uh, they actually believed that light originated from inside and then was projected out of the eye. I know that sounds bizarre to us, but if you have no understanding for the way in which the eye receives light or sees and refracts light, that would seem like a pretty natural thing to assume, right? It's like a TV screen. It's coming out from what I'm seeing. And so Jesus uses this idea, this R2-D2 hologram idea, okay? He uses this idea to help us understand what possessions can do to our heart. Since light is within us, the idea is that we would project or see light. However, when possessions corrupt our light, all we can do is project darkness. Jesus is warning us here how outward possessions can easily corrupt our inward hearts until all we produce is darkness. When possessions become an idol and occupy effectively the place that God was designed to occupy, we begin crossing lines we never intended to cross. Just ask Elizabeth Holmes, I guarantee you when she started Theranos, she never, ever, ever thought she would create one of the biggest fraud scandals in United States history. See, possessions are mysteriously idolatrous. They have a hold over our heart unlike very few things do. They have the ability to quickly move from secondary places in our life to primary ones in our heart. And it's with that that Jesus moves into scene three, entitled The Warning of Two Masters. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You either love God or you love money. You can't love both. Dale Bruner puts it this way, the commonest God in this current world is success. And the Christian, no less than others, wants to be successful in something. But this saying teaches that we cannot work largely for God and then moonlight for gain. It's one or it's the other. Once again, we remember Jesus is not necessarily asking us to live as he did. He's not asking us to go commit professional suicide tomorrow for all of us to quit our jobs and to go live on the street. But he is asking us to seriously examine the seat, success, awards, appointments, salaries, promotions, possessions, and money occupy in our lives. And as a result, he asks us to make some different decisions. We are to work, in his words, not for worldly gain, but for the purpose of bringing glory to him and of serving the other. And if our heart orientation is not towards that, that's the moment when we examine, we reconsider. 
It's as if Jesus here is asking us the question, do you care more about money or do you care about me and my kingdom? And if I'm being really honest, I want to say I care more about Jesus, but at times my actions say I care more about money. Worship team, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up. You know, as I sat at my desk on Friday trying to finish up this sermon, I have to confess that even after my long hours of study throughout the week, right, I should have been more prepared for this tax surprise than anybody else in the world. After all of my long hours of reading, after all of my study, after all of my hard work preparing for this moment, this sermon, in that moment, I cared more about my ruined vacation than I did about the things of Jesus and his kingdom. And I found myself asking the question, how do I care more about the treasures of heaven, as Jesus asked me to do, than I care about the treasures of this earth, even though I know they rust, even though I know they break, even though I know they get lost, and even though I know they fade away? How do I do that? I think it's first important to notice that Jesus does not, in the words of Dale Bruner, remove desire from us, but rather he asks us to redirect it. He encourages us to take all of this human ambition that's inside of us and to direct it towards God. So instead of investing investing in the temporal, we work to invest in the eternal, We work to invest in things that last, that bring glory to Jesus. We invest in loving others. We invest in the pursuit of justice. We invest in the care and enjoyment of creation. We invest in the accumulation of wisdom. In other words, Midas, you don't need the golden church. You have the love of a daughter. Gollum, you don't need the gold ring. You have a best friend. Live simply. Elizabeth, you don't need the billions. You have intelligence and charisma that can improve people's life. Live simply. Young professional, you don't need to work 80 hours a week at the office. You have young kids who need the love of you, their parent. Live simply. Cassie, you don't need the expensive anniversary trip. You have a wonderful, loving husband and a great marriage to celebrate at five years. Live simply. This practice is what Arthur Brooks, a writer and reporter for The Atlantic, he calls it a reverse bucket list. You got to love that. He says this, each year on my birthday, I list my wants and attachments, the stuff that fits under the categories of money, power, pleasure, and honor. I try to be completely honest with myself. I don't list stuff I wouldn't actually want or stuff I would hate and never choose, like a sailboat or a vacation house. I have to admit, I would, I would choose a vacation house. That's fine. Uh, rather, I go to my weaknesses, most of which I'm embarrassed to admit involve around the admiration of others for my work. Then I imagine myself in five years. I'm happy. I'm at peace. I'm living a life of purpose and meaning. And I make another list. One that includes the forces that would bring me happiness. My faith, my family, 
my friendships, my work, and all the things that are inherently satisfying and meaningful, the things that actually serve others. Inevitably, these sources of happiness are intrinsic. They come from within and revolve around love, relationships, and deep purpose. They have little to do with the admiration of strangers. And then I take them, that reverse bucket list, and I contrast it with the extrinsic things I listed at first. The outside rewards associated with money, power, pleasure, and honor. And as I compare those two lists, I find myself desiring the intrinsic much more than the extrinsic. Because see, research has shown that intrinsic rewards lead to far more enduring happiness than extrinsic ones do. So here's my encouragement to you today. In those moments when dissatisfaction creeps in, when the pursuit of more begins to grip our hearts, create a reverse bucket list. Remind yourself of the eternal things that last. The things, according to our bedtime stories, Jesus and research, show us bring true and enduring happiness into our lives. May we finish this race called life and hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. You stored up treasures in heaven and not simply treasures on earth. Let's take a moment and pray. Jesus, uh, from my own admittance, this one's a hard one for me. I tend to run the rat race of dissatisfaction consistently in my life going from one thing into the next. Well, I finally have this, but now I need. And Lord, I hope that I'm not the only one in here that feels that way. So I ask Jesus right now, wherever we may find ourselves, no matter how much we do or do not make, no matter what financial freedom we do or do not have, that you would remind us today of the fleeting power of treasures here on earth. That money is such a little thing as we pray weekend and week out. Lord, I pray that you would remind us now here in these moments as we prepare to confess and take communion that you, Father, produce the most wonderful treasures the treasures of love, the treasures of friendship, the treasures of true family, whatever that may look like for us. The treasure of serving others, of bringing glory to you. Now, in this moment, Jesus, I pray that as mysteriously idolatrous as our earthly treasures may be, that you would begin to remove the grip of those things from our hearts and remind us of the beautiful downward motion of your kingdom 
one that doesn't need to continually seek the higher status, the better job, the better house, but one that continually works towards serving the other and serving you. Thank you.